on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week it's our annual Halloween spooktacular. No two-minute drill, no hot takes, just some old-fashioned vengeful hunchbacks, riddling ice princesses, and real phantoms of the opera. Again, if you're watching on the spooky TDO platform, you're going to want to subscribe to the podcast on Scary Stitcher or Bloodthirsty Apple Podcasts. A little bit of sports before we get into the gore of the episode. The Chicago Sky, Ashley, winning it all. Go Sky. National Championship, WNBA, (laughs) Candace Parker, bringing it home for Naperville and the rest of Chicagoland. We're going backwards this evening. Weston Williams, Spooky, how are you? Uh, Well, I'm doing just fine, George. Uh, As you can see from my outfit, I am now from Texas. Uh, um, So... uh, Oh, deep uh, character all... work for you there. Yeah. <laughs> all Dallas, all the way, baby. This is one of those moments when you want to be listening to the podcast so you don't have to see Weston's costume. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Cummings, great to see I'm, you again. I'm I'm back, and I'm here with my creepy flickering dining room light. Hello, everyone. Really? It's spooky just for you. <laughs> and rounding out for the first time in season seven, all five of us are here, Oliver Camacho. So just to be clear, I am not a Halloween gay. I am more <laughs> of a Thanksgiving gay or a Christmas gay. I think actually Thanksgiving is like my real, the holiday that I do best. Uh, one day when I have children, future husband, take note, I, I will make Christmas amazing. Um, and until I have that husband, don't talk to me about New Year's Eve. <laughs> so no. Really, really planning ahead here. I like this. Tiny violins, everybody. <laughs> Of course, the real horror story here in Chicago (laughs) is the uh, Bears being owned by the Heaton Packers from the North last Sunday. That is what we call a bloodbath. Definitely not worth a repeat. Let us talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Again, it's the annual Halloween spooktacular on the OBS. We're leaning into the horror Halloween stories from opera land this week and the first one to shiver your bones around the campfire matt cummings so who here has heard the tale of the macropolis no! oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, frankly top <laughs> echelon of creepy operas in terms of spookiness on its own merits alone oh absolutely um you've got your yeah. turns of the screw you've got your peter's mm. grimes but like macropolis mm. case right up there um you're shirley's verrett's <laughs> your case is Macropolis. You know, I've got a your case is Macropolis. That's exactly <laughs> yes, right. Weston wins this one. Um, for those who don't know, Macropolis case is a Janacek opera that has a bit of a cult following, um, and definitely part of the reason I think is because the premise of the show is just so out there. So, as opposed to most other Janacek operas, uh, which have like a lot of gritty realism, kind of like a Czech folk verismo, they're very like grounded in reality. Macropolis case, though, <laughs> is about the story of Amelia Marti, 
a famous singer who just seems to know all these things that she shouldn't know and has like a really strange interest in an inheritance case um and the plot weaves its way through twists and turns and many characters and it's kind of hard to follow but it turns out that she is not just a singer but she is the 350 year old daughter of a renaissance alchemist who discovered the formula for eternal life you know this opera is so good you guys it's You've so go good see it immediately <laughs> And so she has been searching for the formula for this elixir, and that was attached to the will in the aforementioned inheritance case. <laughs> um, and the whole opera is like this crazy statement about um, the the meaning of the impermanence of life and how the looming specter of death leads us to create meaning and connections rather than apathy. So not your usual fare. It was relatively obscure for a while, you know, and had its champions. Eventually, it made its way through New York City Opera, through San Francisco, to the Metropolitan Opera for its big premiere, set to be in 1996. We've got um, opera box score Hall of Famer Jesse Norman, who played um, Elena Macropolis slash Emilia Marti in that production. And she's not the only one, though. It has a pretty big cast and uh, fairly strenuous vocal demands for really everyone in order to be heard over the orchestra. Um, one of the cast members in that premiere was a tenor named Richard Versal. He's a dramatic tenor from Michigan. Uh, he was performing the role of the law clerk Vitek, uh, but he sang a lot in Europe in heroic repertoire like Fidelio, Tristan, mm, mm, Otello, mm. Tannhäuser. Like, nice. serious singer. Really major resume. Um, the momentous occasion of this premiere was slightly overshadowed. Slightly overshadowed by a horrific tragedy when on opening night not long into the performance Versal suffered a heart attack and at the time that that happened he was standing on a sliding ladder that was attached to a file cabinet because he's a no, law clerk no, 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 and he fell down onto the stage from 10 no. feet up no. Uh, oh, no. which like you wince just just picturing that and at the just time no. Even some of the audience members gasped, but others, like, weren't sure if it was real or if it was part of the staging. Like, no one knew this opera um, until they heard him hit the floor. Uh, oh, my God. He, and That's, if, like, my worst fear with, like, a theater production. Anytime you're anytime. on stage. Anytime you have to go yeah. up to the upper level on a stage, you're like, oh, my God. Nope. And if that wasn't irony drenched enough for this to happen during an opera about mortality... The line that he sang just before he fell was, too bad you can only live so long. Come on. Oh, no. Lie. Oh, my God. They, they stop the performance. The conductor's yelling over the pit to, like, ask if he's okay. Um, but he was taken to the hospital where he died not long after. Oh. And can you imagine being in the audience of that performance? Just insane. I, I or on stage actually. in the cast. Oh, uh, Poor Jesse. Poor Jesse. The opera is cursed. Well, this opera didn't develop as much of a reputation for being cursed as some others that we're going to mention tonight. But this is like <laughs> a stranger than fiction moment. I feel like if I were trying to write a short story about this, my editor would send me back notes like two on the nose. Can we make this <laughs> a cliche. little bit more believable? <laughs> a little uh, too specific. But on, there's no denying that this happened. <laughs> and it's so eerie that it sends shivers down my spine. Uh, let's take a listen to a recording of uh, well, of we're gonna moment. we're gonna listen to this a recording of this moment, but it's a different translation uh, than the one that they used at the Met. This is a, a translation they used uh, somewhere in England because it's an English language version of right. this show. But this is the exact moment where it would have happened. 
this is not a not a snuff no, audio piece. Yeah. Let's let's, let's yeah. put that out there. This first. isn't the actual fall. This is the last of you. Oh dear, my goodness. 1827, 1832, 40, 1847, only a few years now to its 100th anniversary. From the first act of Leos Janicek's The Mercropolis Case, we heard the recording featuring John Graham Hall in the role of Vitek, the role that was sung by Richard Versailles on the day that he died at the Metropolitan Opera, and that recording featuring the English National Opera Orchestra conducted by Sir Charles Macaris. Another spooky story from the Metropolitan Opera. It's Wednesday, February 10th, 1897. And the curtain is coming down on the first act of Friedrich von Flotow's opera, Martha, or Marta. And singing the role of Tristano is bass Armand Castlemary. The chorus is dancing, the audience is applauding, the curtain comes up, and Castlemary is on the ground with his arm outstretched towards the audience. And the audience erupts even more into applause. And they think that this is the best performance he's given, that his acting is so veristic on this day. And he's actually dying on stage with this insipid music happening in the background. Oh, <laughs> 
That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Oliver Camacho giving me the shivers at least. I don't know about the rest yeah. of the team. The man oh. can, cra- can craft a moment. <laughs> Again, it's the it's the Halloween spooktacular on the OBS. Oh, I'm getting the willies already. Weston Williams. Oh, that was a nice alliteration there. The Willies with Weston Williams. <laughs> How could we never use that before? The Weston Williams podcast, <laughs> I smell. <laughs> well, now, uh, uh, for those of you who are listening on the audio-only version, I am wearing a cowboy hat, so I'm just going to lean in real close and tell you all to gather around the campfire here while I'll tell you a little ghost story. You're going to keep this up the whole time. <laughs> I, I'm not going to do this more than another okay. two sentences. I can't hold it. That would have been uh, horrific. <laughs> okay, I'll drop the bit. Hi, everyone. Uh, so, in opera circles, uh, there's perhaps no more iconic spooky story than that of the Phantom of the Opera, which, we, as we all know, is a musical featuring, um, in the film Andrew version, heartthrob, uh, uh, what, oh God, what's his name? Michael Crawford. No, 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 no. The the one uh the one who can't sing. Jared Butler. There he is. That's the boy. <laughs> anyway, so I don't think I want to recap most of Phantom because I feel like most people already know it. Basically, is Matt coming guy... to Louis Bertel of our podcast? <laughs> I hope so. I okay. aspire to be. We all should aspire to be Louis Bertel. So in the classic musical, you have this love triangle um, uh, between the opera ghost, whose name is Eric. He hangs out in the basement of the Paris Opera. He's a real weirdo. um, And he drops a chandelier on some folks. And, you know, you know the story already. But what if I told you there's actually some truth to that story? Or at least there might have been. So the version I was always familiar with was not the upbeat Broadway musical. I always, my, the, my first uh, encounter with the Phantom story was uh, the 1925 film version with Lon Chaney, uh, where he pins up his nose and folds it back and like really makes it grotesque. And like the mask he's wearing is like, it looks like flesh, like real skin. So when it rips off of his face and reveals this <laughs> skeleton underneath, it's, it's, ugh, I love it. Um, don't care for the musical. Uh, <laughs> but we'll fight about result- that at a later date. <laughs> yes, we will. Um, but I, I watched this as, as a kid, thought it was great. And I decided to go look at the original story this came from. Um, and I, I read the book, the original Gaston Leroux, uh, a book is published in 1910. Um, and, uh, I d- didn't like it very much. It, it had a lot of romance, uh, a love triangle stuff that I, as an eight year old was not particularly interested in. I wanted the cool ghost parts. Um, that being said, like there are some like set pieces in there that really stick out that really felt real and spooky. And there was a, there was an opening, the opening paragraph, I just want to read really quick, because that's what got me going down this rabbit hole initially. So the, uh, the book opens, the opera ghost really existed. He was not, as it was long believed, a creature of the imagination of the artists, the superstition of the managers, or a product of the absurd and impressionable brains of the young ladies of the ballet, their mothers, the box keepers, the cloakroom attendants, or the concierge. Yes, he existed in flesh and blood, although he assumed the complete appearance of a real phantom. That is to say, a spectral shade. Now, doesn't that just kind of like sum up like the primal superstition at the heart of the opera house? If you've ever worked in a theater. Yes, that is Lyric Opera of Chicago to a T. 
All opera houses are inherently spooky. It is a fact. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Like, I don't believe in ghosts, but I've never been in a theater after Lights Out where I was the only person there locking up that I wasn't terrified I would see a ghost. Do you know what I mean? And and that is something that goes way, way, way back. And here's the thing about Gaston Leroux, who wrote the original Phantom. His background was as a journalist who occasionally did some investigative journalism on the side, what we would now consider investigative journalism. Um, so there's an interesting, uh, story, a legend, which may or may not have happened where, uh, uh, Leroux was on his deathbed, uh, and apparently one of the last things he did was, was tell someone who was with him that the phantom story was all real. Now, was it? Probably not, but there are surprisingly true things that happened surrounding this story. So let me set the stage for you. This uh, this novel takes place in a real place, the Paris Opera House of the time, the Palais Garnier. Uh, it was built in 1875 as the height of the Second Empire of France. And as a result, it was kind of this symbol of an old imperial order that was not very popular in France at the time, uh, immediately following uh, Napoleon III's death, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I've been there. It's sort of the epitome of an opera house. It's got these beautiful marble ornamentations, these statues. It is so ostentatious. It is. Like, it is Versailles, glorious. just in the middle of Paris. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And but it's got like all these twists and turns. You know, it's got the grand staircase, a little alcove under the staircase. Um, it, it's unexpectedly. I, I think for me, it's a little smaller than I would expect going into it. There's all these little nooks and crannies that you just want to. Uh, find that you like you you can really imagine like pulling on a cherub a cherub or like you know lifting up a a bust of a long dead composer and pressing a button and the walls open up to reveal the lake under Palais Garnier. But here's the thing, everyone will tell you, oh, what a silly story, a lake under an opera house. That's not a thing. It kind of is. No. Mm-hmm. Because when they were laying the ground stone in 1862, the workers in charge of the construction discovered this problem. The site is fairly close to the Seine River, and water kept trickling in. They had pumps on like 24 hours a day. They could not clear it out. So their solution was, this This is a perfect piece of land. It, it solves a lot of the architectural problems of the city at the time. We need to build this opera house here. We can't just move it. So they built this huge cistern. Uh, which to basically contain all the water. The idea was that they would like, well, we've got all this water in the basement. Maybe if there's a fire, we have a nice good water source to put it out. So they built the opera house around this tiny dark lake. And the only access point to this day is a single ladder in a back room that you can go down what? and you walk through. This is absolutely true. And, and keep in mind, this is like, you know, uh, probably within very easy digging distance of the Paris catacombs where, uh, not an exaggeration, six million skeletons are lying. (laughs) I've been there. No, 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 no. Very, very spooky. The musical writes itself. The musical really (laughs) writes itself. But here's the thing. Because of this strange, strange combination of architectural features, um, stories about the Garnier began to happen almost immediately. Even before 
it was finished because when they started to build it, there was the Franco-Prussian War. Everything, you know, went sideways. Uh, and then there was the Paris Commune. And at various points in the conflict, uh, uh, members of the Commune held the Paris Opera House, the incomplete Opera House, as uh, a, a staging ground for uh, for battles. They might have kept prisoners there. They might have executed people. It was held by the other side as well. So there could very well be bodies underground that we still don't know about to this day. And as a matter of fact, there is nothing I could find that absolutely confirmed this. But there were actually rumors um, that a body was discovered under uh, the Paris Opera House. This was in 1907. Uh, they were putting, they were digging under the opera house because they wanted to preserve some old wax cylinder recordings of some of the big names of the day. They dug it up uh, and they were going to bury them underneath the opera house. But allegedly, someone said that a body was found while they were digging down there. Is it confirmed? Nope. No. Is it possible given the history of the construction? Oh yeah, it's it's possible. Certainly not impossible. Now here's the thing. Leroux actually claimed that the body found uh, was uh, disfigured in some way along the face, and he made the connection to apparently some sort of missing architect named Eric. Hmm, where have we heard that name before? So what you, what you have is uh, this really specific case that seems to align very directly with the story. In addition to rumors uh, all over the opera house soon after it opened that said that um, there was someone living in the basement or perhaps that uh, there were whisperings of uh, sounds that people could hear in box number five, which to this day has a plaque that says the box of the Phantom of the Opera, which I think is great. Um, you can actually ah. go see this today. Um, uh, and and there's something about that 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 you know, is it true? Probably not, but it rings so so primally in sort of like what the what the opera house represents in Paris. You know, uh, there is something to be. Uh, opera isn't just something to uh, make believe to to set music to. It gets at the heart of like politics, science, spirituality, art everything in sort of the Parisian character of the city. And it's not something to be trifled with, much like the Phantom himself. In conclusion, sure, it's possible the Phantom is a rumor. He may never have existed either as a ghost or as a person. But if I went to the Palais Garnier after dark, perhaps after the orchestra has packed up their instruments, most of the audience has gone home and the front of house staff start turning off the lights, I would still want to cl steer clear of box number five and the seven-ton bronze chandelier because... Also, fun fact, a counterweight from that fell and killed someone uh, in, like, 1896. So that's also a true story. So, yeah. Good Phantom, God. definitely real confirmed. This is a it good... Took, Go ahead, it took Isaac. everything I had not to, like, underscore with mouth trumpet all I ask of you the entire time <laughs> <that you're> talking. <laughs> I was thinking I music just... of the night, yeah. <laughs> They're catchy tunes. Excellent uh, argument for using ghost lights in theater. It's one of my favorite mm. pieces of theater architecture is the exposed single bulb that burns on the stage overnight. So keep all those spooky phantoms away. Thank you, Weston Williams, for a truly bone-chilling turn of a tale. Softly, deftly, music shall caress you. 
up your mind Let your fantasies unwind In this darkness that you know You cannot find The darkness of the music of the night Let your mind start a journey Through a strange new world Leave all thoughts of the life you knew before Let your soul take you The year is 1997. Korean soprano Yonggak Shin is scheduled to sing one performance of Elvira in Ipuritani. She declines the invitation to sing Puritani because earlier that winter, she was asked to sing Oscar in Balo and Mascara because Luciano Pavarotti apparently did not learn the role of Don Alvaro in La Forza del Destino and the Met, rather than fire Pavarotti, changed the opera schedule and replaced Forza with Balo and Mascara. And with Yongok Chin having to prepare Oscar, she did not want to do just one performance of Elvira in Ipuritani. So they engaged Ruth Ann Swenson, a star opera singer at the time, Ruth Ann Swenson comes down with an illness and she's unable to sing Elvira in Puritani and her understudy, Martil Rowland, also falls ill. All of this because Luciana Pavarotti did not learn La Forza del Destino. Why not? Some say it's because his schedule was too backed up and he didn't have time to prepare for the role. But others think it's because he refuses to sing this opera because of the curse of La Forza del Destino. In 1960, legendary American baritone, baritone Leonard Warren, after singing the, the phrases before his aria, Morir Tremenda Cosa, to die, what a tremendous moment, Leonard Warren collapsed and died on stage. I mean, you got to applaud the timing at least. At least he learned it. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Come on, Pavarotti. <laughs> OBS annual Halloween spooktacular. I've got the shivers. I hope you do too. And I hope you're listening. On... And I, ho I hope you learned Don Alvaro. 
you tenors out there. <laughs> Definitely learn that. Or don't. <laughs> or, yeah, <laughs> specifically <laughs> don't learn it. Far away from it. Whatever you're doing, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Ashley Hardgrave with the third and final chilling story. That is correct. As uh, the basic nice white lady in your feed in this show, it seems very appropriate that I would bring you the true crime that comes from the Met. <laughs> Pour Only murders in the Met. Strap in, ladies and gents. And everyone in between. Uh, quick content warning, though. There is a little bit of uh, violence in this. Uh, so if things like assault are something that you're not comfortable with, then we will love you all the same if you skip this story. Um, there are plenty of murders sung about on stage at the Met, and apparently a lot of people killing themselves doing arias, as we've learned over the last few moments. But did you know there was an actual murder backstage 41 years oh. ago? July 1980 brings us the story of violinist Helen Hagnes Mintinks. Uh, she was playing a pickup gig for the Berlin Ballet because they were in town. Rudolf Nureyev was actually soloing with them. Uh, cool. She played Firebird and was not needed for the second piece, so she left her violin on her chair and got up to stretch her legs during her intermission. She never returned. So let's learn a little bit about Miss Helen Hackness. She's the youngest of three sisters who grew up on a farm in British Columbia. Her parents were very devoted to her music. Uh, they actually used to take the family farm truck and drive her to her violin lessons in Vancouver. Uh, she had already soloed with the Seattle Symphony by the time she left Canada for Juilliard, where she did a bachelor's and a master's degree. After that, she went to Spoleto and to Switzerland to study additionally, and then she moved back to New York and had a very active touring and freelance career. Uh, a close friend of hers, Judith Olson, who was a pianist at Juilliard at the time, uh, said, you know, she never knew a stranger, so it was not surprising that anybody would have been made friends with her. She married shortly after returning to New York and by all accounts was very universally beloved, was just a really nice lady and led kind of a quiet life as a as And a honestly, player. having listened to a true crime pro podcast or two in my time, that's a big sign that something bad is about to happen. Yeah, yeah. If they say you lit up a room, it's, yeah, it's going to be curtains yeah, pretty yeah, soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of true crime, now, anybody that watches a lot of true crime or documentaries, uh, you know about New York City in the early 1980s. It's, it's not great. It's not great there. Uh, the city was going bankrupt. Crimes were very high. Real estate values were low. Porn was huge in Times Square. Ah, uh, yes, uh, the old Times Square. I remember this is the Ed Koch. <laughs> David Dinkins years. Uh, yes, the Catch Dinkins years. The crack academic had really held the city hostage and hit it pretty hard. But the art centers of New York City were somehow untouchable. The Met was really one of the things that was holding New York City as it was crumbling together as this social and cultural capital, which made this murder that happened at the Met in its halls during a show that much Jeez. more jarring. So, like I mentioned, Helen left uh, for her intermission break around 9.30 p.m. on July 23rd, 1980, but never returned. The show resumed. Her husband Janice used to pick her up from work every night because he didn't want her going through the streets of New York with her very expensive violin. She did not show up to be picked up, and so she was reported missing. Her body was discovered the next morning in an air shaft off the roof of the Metropolitan Opera. Oh. So this... Discovery of a body at the Met shattered any sense of safety that was left for Manhattan's elite. And to keep the mood a little bit lighter here, it was also the worst PR emergency for the Met until Peter Gelb showed up. Uh, <laughs> 
It's going to get heavy in a second. I had to keep it light for a hot second. Okay, uh, thank you. It was an incomprehensible thing. They have no witnesses. There's no suspects. Cops had no leads. And there's this body. Uh, and so the media actually dubbed the killer the Phantom of the Opera. Because, of course, they did. Uh, It was about as big a murder case as New York had ever seen. And patrons and employees alike were panicked. There's actually footage of a very young Meredith Vieira reporting for the CBS affiliate in New York City. She's interviewing Met employees. And the overall theme of all of the interviews is basically everybody here is afraid. They were afraid it was an inside job. And now one of their colleagues amongst them is walking around guilty. Uh, So in an effort to calm the public's fear, the Met begins to offer tours of the building Two reporters. So this is days after this crime happened. And the Met is opening up their spaces to reporters to be like, see, look, it's fine. Everything here is okay. Uh, The entire (laughs) Met community is on edge. Police interviewed every single employee. And that Phantom of the Opera headline dominated New York City papers over the course of the summer. Uh, Evidence led the cops to a stagehand, 21-year-old Craig Crimmins. Investigators found his handprint on the roof of the building, and the rope that was used to bind Helen, this is that warning I mentioned earlier, uh, they were tied into something called a clove hitch knot, which is a knot that only a stagehand would have known. Uh, And from this and from all of their investigations, cops put together the narrative of what happened to our friend Helen. This part's tough, so bear with me. I'm going to go quickly. As Helen returned from her break, she got in an elevator with Craig Crimmins. Reportedly, he was intoxicated. He tried to make a pass at her, and she slapped him. And at that point, he snapped. So while the performance resumed without her... Crimmins dragged her through the maze. And if you've been to the Met, you know backstage is a maze. So he mm-hmm. drags her through the maze that is the backstage at the Metropolitan Opera into the sub-basement where he tried to sexually assault her. After she fought him off, he dragged her to the roof of the Met and he tied her up again with those knots that helped identify him later on. She fought him once again and she did get away. He eventually caught her. He beat her. He tore off her clothes and he gagged her. Then he threw her belongings down an air shaft and eventually kicked Helen behind them where she fell six stories to her death. While at the same time, in the same building, an audience was watching Don Quixote. She was a doorway away from thousands of people when she died. Mr. Crimmins eventually did, after about a month of investigation, uh, confess to the police and he went on trial in 1981 for Helen's killing. He was convicted of felony murder two and sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. He has faced a parole board every other year of his sentence that he was eligible, and he has been denied each time. He's currently in his 60s, and he was up for parole again this year. And according to the New York Department of Corrections records, he was released to parolee supervision in the Bronx just two months ago in August of this year. Oh because, my. of course, I looked it up. The man is out. The man is walking oh boy. the streets. Uh, there is a book that was written about this event. Uh, it's David Black's Murder at the Met. It has a very appropriately spooky and scary uh, cover to it. And it has in- in-depth investigative uh, interviews with some of the law enforcement that worked on this case. Um, so, yeah, this this was real. This actually happened. And it really held the Met hostage for the summer of 1980. I will tell you, there is one really beautiful note. Uh, to end this spooky story on 
So Helen did a lot of traveling as a freelance musician, and she was really into reincarnation, and she visited Egypt. And something about the country just really spoke to her. She was drawn to it. She fully believed that she had ancient roots there and had lived there in a past life. Uh, she loved it so much that she made her husband, Janice, promise that if anything ever happened to her, he would bring her ashes there. And so, of course, when this horrible thing that makes national and international news happens to her, her husband is beside herself or beside himself, excuse me, and wants to, like, find a way to... To, to honor her. And in his moment of desperation, he wrote to Egyptian president Anwar Sadat. The letter <laughs> reached Anwar Sadat and Sadat arranged flights for Janice and Helen's ashes and her wish was fulfilled and she was scattered in Egypt. Oh, that's nice. That is not the ending I expected, but also the previous ending I didn't expect either. Jeez, Ashley, that was terrifying. All because of a knot, he was caught. I feel like if he would have just was, done, just done like a regular knot and not some fancy stagehand knot, you know. Well, but also, you know, I mean, if we really want to get to the heart of the issue, if a woman says no, believe her and leave her the hell alone. Amen. <laughs> That's the scary thing that men don't hear no. That's true. But yes, uh, beautiful Helen and her wonderful spirit, her ashes were scattered in her favorite place. So she, she got the happy ending, however differently, that was deserved. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us on the show. We will still do a good call and a bad call. We'll make sure that it's Halloween related. Oliver Camacho. Well, this is our special Halloween episode, and as we said on the last episode, Edita Gruberova, literally her death was announced as we were prepping the show. So we do plan on having a tribute to Edita Gruberova next week. And damn, why did you gotta die? I mean, we've been talking about her. She retired. She literally which, just retired. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, she, yeah. And she, she retired because of COVID. I mean, she was still concertizing and she would have continued to sing, but, you know, not being able to sing, I think, is what killed her, honestly. Matt Cummings. So we've had a lot of scary stories for you tonight. Maybe you're not a horror movie person, but even so. The Scream franchise is a modern masterpiece and everyone should watch them. <laughs> you have my permission to skip Scream 3. It is as bad as everyone says. <laughs> Weston Williams is just plain spooky enough as it is. Mm. Ashley Hardgrave. <laughs> My suggestion can be summed up for you in three words. Muppets Haunted Mansion. You're welcome. Watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I am definitely not someone who is into horror films at all, but in preparation for production of Turn of the Screw some years ago, I did watch... One of the shortest, scariest films I've ever seen. It's on YouTube. It's called Lights Out. Oh, I love that one. Well, of course you do. It is the freakiest, scariest seven minutes I've ever seen, which is basically about a single light switch. Find it and Ooh. enjoy. That's it for this year's edition of the OBS Halloween Spooktacular. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at OperaVoxScore. Help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes at OperaVoxScore@gmail.com and get some OBS swag and merch in return. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher or just 
favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. Our creepy creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. <laughs> Our vampire video editor is Weston Williams. And for your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about Apple as you trick or treat. We're back with an all-new sh- show next week when we pay tribute to the late, great queen of Colorado, Edita Gruberova. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more fun-sized candy bars. Join us if you dare.